Welcome back to Attack of the Drones. Let's continue on with our documentary. One of the scientists they've tapped to bring this vision to life is Mark Kutkowski. DARPA has a program to try to develop climbing robots for various applications, surveillance, inspection, and so on. I'm Professor Mark Kutkowski at Stanford University, and my goal is to build robots that can go anywhere. One of the advantages of climbing robots is surveillance, uh, spying, or uh, monitoring areas, because they can climb a building or a tree or another structure. The ability that we required was for the ability for a robot to walk up a vertical surface and achieve a position high up in a tree or up a telephone pole, up a, up a wall. To achieve this daunting goal, Kutkowski worked closely with biologists to unlock the mysteries of nature's best climbers. We've been collaborating with uh, Professor Robert Full at UC Berkeley for a number of years. Dr. Full shot slow-mo videos and microscopic photos of insects to find out how they used tiny spines on their feet to climb vertical walls. Applying Foll's discoveries, Kutkowski set out to develop the feet for a climbing robot named Rise. Here you can see how the spines are grabbing little bumps and pits on the surface, and we have lots of these tiny spines, so they share the load. The real hard problem came down to how do you achieve the attachment forces between the foot and the vertical surface that's great enough to support the weight of the vehicle itself. If you want a robot that climbs vertical surfaces, smooth, rough, dirty, clean, then the gecko really is the premier example of a climbing animal. The gecko can cling to glass by a single toe and walk upside down on the ceiling. It sticks to the surface through a phenomenon called van der Waals forces. Van der Waals forces are a basic molecular attraction that always exists between any two molecules if they get close enough. And it has to do with a kind of momentary um, arrangement of the electrons. And you can take advantage of it if you can get really intimate contact between two different surfaces. Millions of tiny hairs on the gecko's toes create the intimate contact with a climbing surface that generates van der Waals forces. Kutkowski and his team have built a droid called StickyBot that harnesses that same power. It is basically our attempt to um, take the, the principles that we've learned from how geckos climb and apply those to a robot that also uses van der Waals force to climb vertical surfaces. The secret to StickyBot is in the uh, adhesive pads that are on its toes. Kutkowski's team fabricated pads that have hundreds of nanoscale stalks. As with the gecko, the stalks are sharply angled, so the toes stick when going in one direction, but easily peel off when pulled the other way. When you load it with gravity, the way the robot loads it, it sticks. And to make it detach, you just have to pull it a little bit in the opposite direction, and it pops right off. Now imagine troops of real Terminators climbing up the side of a building, spying on the enemy, and waiting for that moment to attack. Once a robot climbs up there, it can hang. It doesn't have to expend any power, so it can cling there for hours or even days, unobtrusively. That's quite different from something like a small helicopter, which always has to expend a lot of power and make a lot of noise. Well, you see, it's much more efficient, and it costs less. And can you believe that? 
Okay. Oh, by the way, did you catch that part there about having Terminator robots having the same climbing ability and surprising people? Uh, that couldn't happen, could it? You'll see soon enough. But speaking of creepy folks, for all of you who are not only afraid of lizards, but other reptiles like snakes, wait till you see this one. It can get you on land or even the water. Watch this. Sidewinder rattlesnakes scale sandy slopes with ease. The slithering snakes can do this by making big S-curves as they push diagonally forward. By looking at how the rattlesnakes wriggle on sandy inclines, scientists at Georgia Tech found that as the slopes get steeper, the sidewinders keep more of their body in contact with the sand. The team then tested their idea with a snake-like robot that had been built at Carnegie Mellon University. Using the contact trick from the real rattlesnakes, researchers changed the robot's moves. Finally, it too could work its way up a slope. Natural inspiration like this can help robots move beyond the flat, hard floor of a lab to Earth's more uneven surfaces, such as rock, dirt, and sand. The transition may make the bots more useful in search and rescue operations. A lot of people, when they think of a robot, they have this anthropomorphic vision. They think of a humanoid robot that's going to come into your house, maybe do, do your dishes. And some of the more informed people know that there are a lot of robot arms in factories, painting cars, welding, and what have not. However, the animal kingdom is full of non-human animals that have been very successful in getting into all sorts of places, doing all sorts of tasks. So one robot is like a snake. So what's nice about these robots is they have all these degrees of freedoms, with which they can thread through tightly packed volumes and get to locations that people and machinery otherwise can't access. So here we have is one of our snake robots. Why don't we drive around a little bit? There you go. It's gradually making its way towards me. <laughs> yeah. So not only can we get into tight spaces where people and conventional machinery otherwise can't access, for something with a small size, we're able to achieve a bunch of mobility capabilities that conventional devices, robots can't. So for example, this guy here can roll like a wheel, but could also uh, look Whoa. around and get onto pipes and crawl up and uh, uh, all sorts of things. So is that a camera I can see in the front? Yes, so, so what, what, what you can see is on the video, you can see what the robot sees as it's going through some, some tight terrain there. Wow. So if we want, we can use you as a volunteer. Oh, I, yeah, I'd love to be uh, tackled by a so, robot snake. So let's get the camera on his leg. All right. So, so one application is, is these robots, they, they do a variety of things. They crawl on the ground, they, they climb up pipes, whatever. For any one of those tasks, maybe you can build a better mechanism, but there's no Whoa. one mechanism that can do all of these tasks. So it's the versatility of these devices that make them special. So here, you know, of course, there really is no real oh, wow. application for climbing legs. It's kind of heavy. But, but heavy. you can imagine in some remote location where you want to swim through a moat, get on a field, go through some rubble pile. Strangle a tech editor. Scrabble tech editor, uh, only, only a nice one. No, no, no. Only, only the nice ones. Yeah. <laughs> what we want to do is we want to provide a tool that will extend the reach of rescue workers so they can stay out of harm's way and they won't cause collateral damage while looking for trapped survivors. A research group in the Hirosei Fukushima lab at the Tokyo Institute of Technology is doing R&D on an amphibious snake robot. This robot moves by twisting its body similar to the motion of a snake. The motion is almost the same on land and in water. 
One feature of this robot is its joints, which combine bellows with universal joints. In this structure, the bellows prevent water from penetrating the universal joints. Each joint unit has a CPU, battery and motor. Each unit exchanges signals independently and automatically recognizes how far behind the head it is and how many joints there are in the body. This makes it possible to add and replace joints freely. And, and here's the high point of the experience for me. We actually operate on a person. So what you're seeing here is the snake robot entered this uh, person's xiphoid process, uh, right over here, and we made a 20 millimeter turn one way, a 20 millimeter turn the other way, and we're behind the heart performing what's called an epicardial mapping. What you're seeing in this video is the live uh, fluoroscopy, so it's like a live x-ray, as the snake goes around her heart, and then this video here is the direct visualization. So these are her lungs, and below it are the beating heart. Well, that's exciting. Robot snakes on the ground, in, in the water, in my heart. What's next? Well, these new robots won't just be crawling. They'll be hopping. That's right. Move over, kangaroos. You've been replaced. Your robot cousin is here. Okay, I'm not going to Australia, uh, but that sure would be kind of cool to have as a pet. I mean, what would they think of next? Robot animals in the air, land, crawling, hopping, these guys are everywhere. But speaking of everywhere, they're not planning on putting robotic animals in the water too, are they? Actually, it's already begun, starting with jellyfish. Watch this. Well, even being stung by, ever been stung by a jellyfish? Yes, that can hurt, but maybe useful. Uh, that's what researchers at Virginia Tech College and Engineering are betting on. They've unveiled, unveiled a robotic jellyfish. Yes, you've heard me correctly. They've nicknamed this creation Syro, and get this, it's over five feet tall and tips the scales at 170 pounds. In a news release, the school says that this robotic jellyfish is a larger model of a robotic jellyfish of the same team of researchers that was unveiled in 2012. 
Both robots are a part of the project funded by the U.S. Naval Undersea Warfare Center and the Office of Naval Research. The purpose for these robots, you ask? The surveillance and monitoring of underwater environments. This includes the studying of aquatic life, mapping ocean floors, and monitoring ocean currents. So is this amazing technology only going to be used for aquatic life? Only time will tell. However, not only do we have to worry about the jaws on the beach, now we have to worry about the government's new robotic jellyfish also lurking in the water. The Navy is building a fleet of robot jellyfish. I didn't know you had it in you to be that awesome, Navy. Guys, let's talk about jellyfish, because they're amazing. Scientists consider them to be one of the most efficient animals in the sea because they're able to get around easily without expending very much energy at all. They're also capable of living in these crazy temperature and pressure differences and in salt or fresh water. So when you're thinking about making an autonomous underwater robot, they're pretty much the animal that you want to mimic. This is Cyro. It was created by researchers from Virginia Tech with a $5 million grant from the Navy. Cyro is about five foot seven, weighs about 170 pounds, and is supposed to capture some of that jellyfish efficiency by using minimal motion tied to ocean currents and self-charging to keep it going for months at a time. Now, in my perfect world, the answer to, hey, why are you guys building a robot jellyfish would be, uh, because of robot jellyfish. But it turns out the Navy actually wants a robot that does something useful for their five million bucks. So Cyro's job would be surveillance and monitoring the environment, mapping the ocean floors, gathering information about currents, and studying aquatic life. And maybe more. See, Motherboard is quick to point out that the Navy is essentially building their own drone surveillance network, an undersea version of what the Air Force and the CIA are building out for the skies. They also gently remind us that the U.S. Naval Undersea Warfare Center, which is the department of the Navy that wrote the grant, is the same department that supposedly attached hypodermic needles full of carbon dioxide to dolphins in the 70s that they would use to blow up divers. They also allegedly put spring-loaded on trained sea lions that are supposed to just shoot out and tie people's legs together and sink them. The implication here is that Cyro could be outfitted for combat. A robot that big is obviously built to carry a large payload, so that payload could potentially be some sort of a weapon system. Now, I don't think there's anything I find more terrifying than the idea of a creepy, giant, undulating, weaponized jellyfish. And I agree. <laughs> Can you believe that? An army of weaponized jellyfish? Uh, I thought the fear of Jaws was bad. Actually, that fear of Jaws is about to get even worse. Watch what they're doing with sharks. The Navy's newest underwater drone is going to make anyone who spots it say, this was no boating accident. I'm Jen Markham on Buzz 60. As a part of the Navy's Silent Nemo project, it's called the Ghost Swimmer. And its task is pretty much what its secretive and aquatic names imply. It's a robot shark spy. Well, since it's only five feet long and around 100 pounds, it's more like a robotic tuna spy. The idea is the ghost swimmer looks and moves so realistically, it could be easily mistaken for a harmless fish and not as a million dollar Navy operative. It's got rubbery skin, flaps its fins, can dive down to 300 feet, and can be controlled either by a tether or remotely, only needing to occasionally return to the surface to communicate and, of course, to appear even more creepily lifelike. The Navy's been testing the drone in waters off its Norfolk, Virginia base and says it could eventually be used not just for surveillance and intelligence gathering, but also to replace the real live military dolphins the Navy currently trains to rescue swimmers and locate landmines. The only thing about this I don't understand, if it's supposed to be some secret stealth machine intended to fool our enemies and allies, maybe the Navy shouldn't be posting video of it in action on the internet. Just saying.
which kind of lends to my opinion. If we see anything in the media that they admit they're doing, like this robot shark, we're actually 20 years behind the technology as this next interview shows. Let's take a look. Well, Robert, I wanted to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, let us interview you and uh, hopefully share with our viewers some of your uh, insights that you've had throughout the years. Uh, if you don't mind, if you could take a moment and just share with the viewers what uh, your background and I believe it was with the uh, Merchant Marines. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I'm a, um, a graduate of the Maritime uh, um, Academy and uh, I've spent most of my uh, career in construction and ship repair. I okay. uh, built, uh, built and repaired ships uh, pretty much all over the world. Yeah. And um, I'm a uh, licensed chief engineer in the Merchant Marine as well. Okay, okay. So uh, literally you could say you've traveled around the world. Yes. So, and uh, in your travels I'm sure that you've come across some pretty interesting things. Yes, I have. And I know behind the scenes you know more than what you can share on camera, but uh, you know, some of the premise that we're trying to get across to the viewer is it's not just high technology, uh, but it's technology that, frankly, uh, it seems new to us, but uh, technology has been around very high tech for quite some time. And uh, if you could maybe share um, a couple that maybe, or a, something, an example of, of what's been around for a while, if most people have no, no idea. Well, I've been involved in uh, um, ships or platforms or what have you that have uh, tracking uh, uh, devices on board that, uh, that literally can uh, track uh, golf balls in space. Uh, one uh, uh, one uh, vessel that, uh, that I know of uh, uh, claimed to, have been a, uh, to be able to track uh, uh, tennis balls uh, from uh, the Pacific uh, uh, to Chicago. Wow, wow. So, um, uh, they have uh, a great deal of technology in, in, in regards to tracking, so uh, uh, I think they're actually looking at things uh, larger than golf ball. <laughs> yeah, balls. yeah. So, but if you can do that with a golf ball, yeah. And what else could you do? If yeah, if you can, if you can do that, you can do it quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, you had, uh, and again, I know you can't share, but I, I know we'd uh, had shared that sometimes on these uh, ships and things and. Uh, not only with the technology, but uh, certain cargo and certain cargo technology that was on there. If people were heading any, any clue what was really traversing around the planet, it'd probably freak them out a little bit. Well, I had my ideas, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, no, there's there's been ships that I've been on when where and generally when when I um, uh, went board ship, um, I could pretty much go any place I wanted uh, uh, when I was surveying ships, things like that. Uh, however, there were occasions when uh, I was told that I, you know, there was places I could not go. And, uh, essentially, they didn't want me to look behind the curtain. Right. And um, um, I'm assuming that uh, you know uh, that I probably didn't want to know what was behind those curtains either. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, but on, on the other hand, uh, um, it was you know it's quite interesting. Uh, uh, I do know that uh, one vessel that uh, that I attended that uh, that had such a curtain, if you will, um, 
was barricaded pretty heavily on, on the pier. Yeah. Um, and uh, with limited access, you know, very yeah. limited access. Yeah. So um, the, uh, they have equipment. Yeah. And, and you know, just, just like I said with the tracking devices and what have you, what, what other equipment they have, I have no idea, but they have, yeah. uh, they do have their secrets. Yeah. Well, and uh, what, what year round roughly do you, do you estimate maybe with some of that tracking technology, do you think you encountered that? Uh, this, would have been, this would have been uh, um, in the uh, uh, mid, uh, well, let's say um, somewhere around 2010, somewhere okay. around there, then right. I, uh, I noticed some of that stuff. Yeah. And so if you had that capability to track a golf ball uh, out in space, yeah. you know, Again, the premise: we're 20 years behind the technology. Yes. Just how far advanced how is this ability? Really? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, you'd also shared uh, sometime uh, that I guess uh, uh, you and I both grew up in Kansas, uh, but um, had an encounter back then. If you don't mind sharing that. Well, this was this was in um, uh, southwestern Kansas. Okay. And uh, uh, it, um, my dad and I used to go fishing out in uh, on some. Uh, uh, creek that was uh, was out in the country there near where we live and at uh, one time we went out there and it you know we usually go out there when it's light and then uh, and then uh, you know it starts to get dark and we come home say sometime around 10 o'clock at night but suddenly we started seeing a light in the sky this would have been uh, probably uh, 1950 1951 somewhere around in there okay and um, so at some time ago and certainly before uh, uh, helicopter, helicopters are really uh, uh, plentiful, you know. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't suspecting any helicopter. My dad and I watched this light in the sky moving from right to left uh, and then coming towards us and then suddenly uh, pulling back, uh, receding. And we noticed that it wasn't making any, any turns. It was just right angle stuff. Right. Um, and um, and it was about um, um, probably a week later they had uh, weekly newspapers in these small farming communities back here in Kansas um, and there was an article in uh, in the newspaper in uh, Coldwater uh, Kansas that uh, a uh, UFO had landed in a farmer's field about the time that my dad and I uh, yeah. noticed this thing and uh, burnt the field yeah so we watched it for uh, uh, several hours. Yeah. Uh, doing this, whatever it was doing. Yeah. And we had, you know, we had no idea what it was, yeah. other than the fact that uh, we'd heard about the UFOs and what happened. Yeah. So. And this was, you said, about 50, 51. 50, 51. Yeah, something like that. And did, did you say it uh, like burnt the field or something? It like burnt that? the field. Yeah. Right. And actually, um, somewhere. After the Roswell incident, if I might share this, yeah, uh, I used to uh, read. Um, uh, I lived in Central Kansas at the time. Okay. I used to read the uh, Denver Post that come on Sundays. Okay, uh, 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 my uh, parents used to get it through the mail and it'd come on Sundays, and, and uh, I was reading an article uh, in there where they were describing. Uh, I, I assume it was Roswell incident, uh, incident and the um, 
and that they had found some alien and they carted him off to uh, uh, Caltech or someplace, yeah. you know, I don't know yeah. where at the time. And, and it was an article that would, that would be continued in the next uh, Sunday edition. Right. Next Sunday edition came and there was nothing there. Right. Yeah. So whatever happened, it, yeah. they couldn't continue the, uh, the article. So yeah. I, I found that to be extremely interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, it seems to happen all too often. We yeah. had, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned about the, the burning of the field and stuff. Yeah. It makes you wonder with uh, a lot of uh, reports today, people talk about crop circles and all this stuff, and uh, they automatically assume it must be some uh, alien aircraft. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe it's uh, the technology uh, with our aircraft and the governments around the world is much more advanced than you really think. It gets blamed on the aliens. And, and we actually addressed this issue in, in great detail on another documentary that we did, uh, UFOs, The Great Last Day's Deception. And my premise on that in the research uh, was, I believe, to throw up a higher number, probably 95% of what people have reported throughout the decades are some sort of alien aircraft. Uh, is actually a military aircraft. That yes, maybe that was back in 1551, but the technology, the general rule is f much further advanced than the public really realizes. So they assume with the help of Hollywood and, and the movies that it must be some sort of alien. However, I do share on that documentary too, there is a smaller element, you know, just to throw out the figure, 5% uh, or whatever. Uh, they, uh, I think they're, it's not just a military aircraft. Uh, it reacts more physical or spiritual in nature not just physical, and it's those critters uh, who are claiming to be the aliens. Who are they? Where did they come from? What are they up to? Why are they here? But uh, we cover that in great detail uh, in our uh, study, UFOs, The Great Last Days, Deception. Uh, but it reminds me of just, you know, again, the general rule is technology is much further advanced, be it drones, be it whatever, uh, than most people realize. And if this stuff is coming out now, what do you really got that we are not aware of? And I think it's a logical conclusion based on the facts. Uh, it reminds me also of a conversation I had with a guy, another guy that I had uh, worked with. And uh, he talked about uh, his nephew had gone to Desert Storm. And uh, he shared with him, who then shared with me, um, that one, they were, uh, on the one hand, excited to go to Desert Storm, not just to take care of an issue, uh, but it was an opportunity because it had been a while since they were able to utilize some of this advanced technology that they had developed, but they hadn't had an arena to use it on. And uh, he says, I can't tell you everything, and maybe he shouldn't have even told this, uh, but he says uh, some of the advanced technology, and again, this was Desert Storm, right? It's quite a while back. And he says uh, some of it was uh, sound weaponry, that they were using sound uh, radars and stuff, and not only had the ability to uh, literally just cause people to drop their weapons and run, and that was an interesting thing that we saw in that uh, arena. They were literally just given up by the truckloads, so could have been that technology he was talking about, or other reasons. Uh, but also with this uh, weaponry, uh, with these sonic projectors, uh, you could actually project these sounds into the human skull, uh, even a voice. And it makes it sound like the voice is coming from inside their head. And, uh, and that was another interesting thing. Also, too, uh, that you could utilize this weaponry that if you wanted to, whether it was done or not, I don't know. But that it literally becomes a, a, a death ray, a death weapon that you could literally just literally beam and fry these people uh, from the inside and out. And, uh, uh, and again, that was Desert Storm. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's the same constant theme with all this technology is if you're releasing this now to the public, 
how much, what do you really have? And, and you had seen, again, some of this tracking technology. What do you, to, to track a golf ball in space, what do you really have, yeah. right? You saw this aircraft, whatever it was, back in 1950, 1951, okay? What do you really have? We're seeing all this stuff with the drone technology. Uh, and then, uh, what, what do you really have? I mean, it's concerning what we see now, but what do you really have that we may never know? Or we might find out, but a little bit too late. Yeah. So, uh, Robert, I thank you for taking the time to uh, let us pick your brain, if you will. My pleasure. And uh, share uh, your background and expertise, and I really do appreciate it. But thank, thank you for coming. Thank you. Yes, that really is the question. What do you really have? Track a golf ball in space? Uh, Amazing flying technology in the 50s. I mean, what do you really got out there today that we have no clue about? And not just in the air or land or, again, the water, okay? You thought that robot shark we saw earlier was wild, very advanced. Wait till you see all the other kinds of underwater creatures in the ocean that are also becoming robotic. Check these out. Detecting explosive devices under the sea with the Huav is in the near future. Now for the far future, Robo-Lobster. The Navy's interest in this vehicle is to hunt for underwater mines. And the idea is that we could actually put a charge on this robot. It could march up to a mine, park on the mine, and then be sent a sonar signal to arm itself and then detonate the mine. Why build a robot mine detector in the shape of a lobster? Mine hunting in shallow waters is very difficult because of wave surges and poor visibility. Lobsters, however, can easily navigate these turbulent waters with their uniquely designed bodies. When you look at most motorized robots, they look like something out of Kafka. They're marching along and making a lot of noise. Uh, this robot is completely silent and it behaves very smoothly just like a real animal. So if we can build a machine that captures the performance advantages that they have, it'll be the most advanced robot for operation in that environment that you could ever imagine. For some it might be hard to imagine high concept robots like a mine detecting lobster becoming part of the military's inventory. It's a psychological issue that's a substantial hurdle, but as I look across the services, I see us moving ahead very well. Forget about whether the intelligence is carbon-based like humans or silicon-based like intelligent machines. Intelligence is intelligence and must be respected. wave of drones is here, and they're underwater. Models mimic stingrays, jellyfish, and other denizens of the deep. The idea being that a drone designed like a stingray will move better and blend in underwater. Seeking out new markets is a key goal for these companies. Some potential customers? Divers who need a little advanced intel on dangerous sea creatures that might be lurking nearby. Yeah, but what if that dangerous sea creature lurking nearby was a drone that was out to get you. 
I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to be a landlubber for the rest of my life, okay? Uh, unfortunately, you might want to rethink that backup plan. You see, they're covering them on the land as well. Check out this robotic cheetah they're making. Land, sea, air, there is going to be no safe place to hide. First, let's start with who is in charge of technology developments for the military. That is the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, an agency that is the stuff of, of uh, mystery novels. Uh, and recently, we've noticed they've been beefing up on robots. Most recently, they contracted with Boston Dynamics to create a cheetah robot. Check that out. Look at this drawing. It's a four-legged robot that reportedly runs faster than the fastest human. will be able to zigzag and take tight turns in order to quote chase and evade it'll also be able to make sudden stops and could end up with a tail not to mention a gun or some other armed lethal weapon starts to make you wonder if this is not the kind of wild beast the bible mentions is unleashed on mankind to aid in killing one-fourth of the planet during the judgment day revelation 6 7-8 when the lamb opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. A robotic armed cheetah like we just saw would fit the bill, right? Could very well be. But they wouldn't do that, would they? Actually, they're also making a smaller robotic cheetah for your house called the Cheetah Cub. I mean, who wouldn't want to have their own robotic cat? Check this out. Cheetah Cub. Wanting to know how to make robots take control of tough terrain with the grace of a feline, scientists at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology made a robotic cat. Using it, they can assess joint force and agility without having to harm an actual animal. Well, that's good. And it, it doesn't shed. And, and can you believe that? I hope they don't arm that one like her big mama. Okay, but they, but they wouldn't arm these things and take people out, would they? Actually, they already are. We already saw the big drones in the sky are already being armed to the gills with deadly guns and hellfire missiles and all kinds of things to take people out from above. So why wouldn't they do the same thing with the ones they're putting on the ground or even in the water? As we just saw, they're already hinting at it in the videos we saw. In fact, we know they're going to arm them because little do people realize that these same deadly characteristics of aerial drones are now being produced in miniature size. We're now going from the UAVs, the unmanned aerial vehicles, to what's called MAVs, or micro aerial vehicles. And when I say micro, I mean micro. Believe it or not, they too carry a payload just as deadly as the big ones. In fact, even the news is sounding the alarm on these new deadly critters. Micro air vehicles, or MAVs, will play an important role in future warfare. The urban battlefield calls for tools to increase the warfighter's situational awareness and capacity to engage rapidly, precisely, and with minimal collateral damage. MAVs will be integrated into future Air Force layered sensing systems. These systems may be airdropped or hand-launched depending on the mission requirements. I'm sorry, did that plane just shoot out a bunch of little tiny drones? Terrifying! 
really terrifying. So these micro air vehicles or MAVs are designed to deal with urban battlefields with rapid precision. The question is what urban battles are military fighting that they need this kind of creepy technology? And forget about shooting these things down. They're about this big. The small size of MAVs allows them to be hidden in plain sight. Once in place, an MAV can enter a low-powered extended surveillance mode for missions lasting days or weeks. This may require the MAV to harvest energy from environmental sources, such as sunlight or wind, or from man-made sources, such as power lines and vibrating machinery. Hidden in plain sight on missions that could last weeks? Powered by the sun or power lines? And did you see that little Terminator-looking pigeon? Orwell would be rolling in his grave if he could see the absurdly dystopic reality we're about to be living in. But their small size is not just to linger undetected outdoors. It's also to gain access inside. Small size and agile flight will enable MAVs to covertly enter locations inaccessible by traditional means of aerial surveillance. Multiple MAVs, each equipped with small sensors, will work together to survey a large area. Information from these sensors will be combined, providing this swarm of MAVs with a big picture point of view. Hmm, maybe these places are not conducive to traditional surveillance methods because it's supposed to be illegal to surveil people's homes without a warrant. And also, how frightening is it to think of a swarm of these little robots coming at you in a dark hallway? Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. They see all. They communicate together, offering this big picture image to whoever's sitting on the other end of the screen. Can anyone say Minority Report? Because this is literally what this country's turning into. And if that isn't chilling enough, sit tight, because it's about to get worse. While some MAVs may be used purely for visual reconnaissance, others may be used for targeting or tagging of sensitive locations. Individual MAVs may perform direct attack missions and can be equipped with incapacitating chemicals, combustible payloads, or even explosives for precision targeting capability. Wow. So if the surveillance fails, then these mini robots can and will set off explosives, chemical agents, and even assassinate human beings. At whose direction? Obama? The same person who has targeted the execution of a 16-year-old without due process? Gee, that's comforting. But will these MAVs really be used everywhere in the future of warfare? MAVs will become a vital element in the ever-changing warfighting environment and will help ensure success on the battlefield of the future. Unobtrusive, pervasive, lethal, micro-air vehicles, enhancing the capabilities of the future warfighter. Unobtrusive, pervasive, and lethal. So, welcome to the brave new world, kids, and watch out for bugs, because the next time you try to kill a fly, it might kill you first. Wow. <laughs> that's not make-believe, folks. That's actual reality. In fact, flies are not the only insects they're doing this with. They're even making, listen to this, robot bees. Check this one out. See if it bugs you. Autonomous robot bugs sound like creatures from a sci-fi flick, but they could become a reality very soon. Scientists at the universities of Sheffield and Sussex in England are designing the first electronic bees in hopes that they can, quote, 
supplement or replace the shrinking population of honeybees that pollinate essential plant life, according to the tech blog io9. The Green Brain Project, as the effort is called, will upload real bees' senses of sight and smell into the tiny robots. Scientists hope these basic cognitive abilities will allow e-bees to detect odors and gases from flowers, just as bees do. The project plans to release the bees in 2015. Along with making the world safe for pollination, these bees don't sting. That is, until they get into the wrong hands. Uh, it looks like it already has. E-bees, e-bugs, e-bugs, e... what's next? Well, can you say e-insects? to release into the public for monitoring purposes and who knows what else, it's already begun. The U.S. military has designed drones so small that they're starting to look like tiny insects. These are used to get into areas that they normally wouldn't be able to reach. These secret insect drones are said to help the fight against terrorism and help protect us. Yeah, they look cool and could make a fun toy, but is this something that cause concern in the future. People in New York and the Washington DC area have been reporting strange sightings of what they describe as tiny machines hovering around different gatherings like the anti-war rally in Lafayette Square last month. A student was convinced these were not real bugs. The FBI, CIA, and other various government organizations have all denied such claims of having many spy drones at work. I guess if we generally trust the government, they would only be used to keep our nation safe. Yeah, that's it, Wally. <laughs> and I've got some swampland here in Vegas to sell you, too. Uh, and believe it or not, that's still not the only invasion planned for these things. A professor in computer science at Harvard, of all places, recently imagined a world, listen to this, this is a quote, in which tiny robot drones flew around the size of mosquitoes extracting a sample of your DNA for analysis by the government or even an insurance firm. Not making it up, check it out for yourself. And, and speaking of robot insects, be it bees and flies and mosquitoes and other bugs like roaches and beetles and termites and dragonflies and bats and butterflies and hornets, and because they're working on those too, I don't have time for that. Another thing they're working on with these MAB drones is swarm capabilities. Pay attention to that. Swarm capabilities just like insects as well. And they can not only chase you individually, but now they can literally swarm you like a bunch of insects down to the ground if need be. Check this out. Multiple vehicles can fly as a formation. We developed a method to transition between formations in 3D. The team can also navigate in environments with obstacles.
about a less expensive and less complex machine, but more of them? That's the idea behind Harvard University's RoboBee. It would take 30 of these to equal the weight of a penny. What happens when you move beyond having just one robot, and instead have a swarm? In the future, swarms of robots operating as a team might build our skyscrapers or map uncharted areas, or scout out victims in disasters as robotic search and rescue teams. Robots are moving closer to thinking and acting like humans, but every advance complicates the issues of accountability and ethics. Now, a new form of warbot is being developed with an artificial intelligence that is a world away from human reasoning almost like a swarm of bees or ants or a wolf pack, you have distributed command and control, but concentrated firepower. That is, everyone making their own little decisions, but then they find what they're hunting for, and then they coalesce and gather around them and then overwhelm them. Very different model of war. It's called a swarm, a group of robots focused on a single task. They are one entity with many parts, operating from within a collective hive mind. There is no central leadership within a robotic swarm. By its nature, a swarm cannot be under human control. They kind of organize themselves in an intelligent way and do something that's uh, coherent and really cool. For example, if you all to go through the doorway, it would be an example of them kind of negotiating amongst themselves so there's no one given leader saying you go first, you go second. They're all kind of deciding amongst themselves who goes first, who goes second uh, without a centralized uh, leader or decision maker. It's very difficult if you've got a big enough swarm it's really impossible for a human to be involved in this much. They can send them in, they can call them off but they can't see much what's going on. Too many images, too much data. Next step beyond that would be full autonomy. The robots themselves would be sent to an area, and if they found anybody, they'd kill them. When you move to swarms, now you're looking at maybe one operator who programs the swarm, being able to have the potential of, of multiple effects on multiple targets. Combining swarm technology with micro-vehicles and UAVs is the next step for the Air Force. And it's happening soon. In 2015, our near-term goal is to demonstrate a bird-sized UAV capable of operating 
semi-autonomously, somewhat by itself, somewhat guided, for up to a week. We're replicating animals because they are around us. They've been proven to be able to fly in these environments at various conditions. One of the 2030 goals has been able to operate a swarm of these vehicles. It's not science fiction, but it is way out science. Swarms capable of self-navigation, face recognition, and lethal force are likely inevitable. But will they be used before they can be programmed to reason and discriminate? There's not a chance of people waiting till we can do proper discrimination. You might, in all the best will in the world, not be intending to use it. But what if a major conflict happens and other people are using robots against you and you've got the technology there? You will use it. People always do. As ground systems, autonomy and swarm technology continue to develop, will the CIA develop a robot army? And if they do, who else will? This all sounds like a bad Hollywood movie, but I'm not making this stuff up. And so one of the sort of fundamental questions in a revolution in a technology is not only what can you do with the technology, but who gets to use it? What organization should be allowed to use it? What organization should not be allowed to use it? If they can use those autonomous weapons, the sky's the limit, I would say, about what they can use in the future without oversight. It's a future I don't want to think about. One of the things that we're working on very hard today is to be able to engage uh, adversary remotely piloted aircraft. One of the big worries that the security forces have is not that they're worried about one of these planes, for instance, coming over, but what if a thousand of them arrived? You could shoot some of them down, but you wouldn't get all of them. And if they can use them, We'll have more on our hands than planes flying into the Twin Towers, won't we? Yes, we will. And it will be our worst nightmare amplified. Unless you think these things aren't going to be used in the urban areas, let alone the battlefield. The military has already predicted that MAVs are going to be a crucial part of a new, listen, fighting force that's being built right now as we speak. It's called MAST, M-A-S-T, or Micro Autonomous Systems Technology. In fact, here's their own promotional video admitting it. This is wild. Watch this.
sponsored by just about everybody. Can you, can you believe that? Birds, bugs, flies, spiders, sharks, jellyfish, cheetahs, you name it. On the land, in the air, in the water, these drones are not only going to be everywhere, whether you recognize them as drones or not, but as you saw, many of them are going to be armed and already are being armed, ready to take you out. In fact, if I didn't know better, I'd say we're headed for a nightmare killer scenario, as depicted in the 1980s movie with Tom Selleck called Runaway. Once again, maybe Hollywood has been preparing us much longer than we think for a horrible future that is coming to our planet soon. Let's take a look at that movie. It is the future mysteriously spreading across an unsuspecting city. Machines trained to serve humans are turning against them. What do you got, Jerry? Model 912, cut up two people inside the house. I'm going in. You're going in? We can send a disarm robot in. If it hit the floater, it'll hit the disarm, and any minute it's gonna decide to hit the kid. An ingenious conspiracy has begun, and someone has to stop the madman who started it all. We've got a non-standard chip here. You can turn any domestic computer into a killing machine. Working late at night all by yourself. I just had a few things to finish up. No, no big deal. Let me help you. No. Luther really wants to keep track of you. Why's that, Jackie? This is a bad guy. He's killed five so far. I want him. I'm telling you, I can't go out there. I can't go out! your name on it? This isn't a runaway. This is murder. We're never gonna make it through this one. Runaway. Yeah, that's a runaway problem, all right. 1984, over 30 years ago. Doesn't seem like a movie anymore, does it? It's our reality. So let me get this straight. Robots get hijacked after they've been uh, permeated in society, uh, and then they become these killing machines, even with guided bullets to chase people down. Look like Hollywood has done it again, predicting a horrible future for you and I that's being built right now before our very eyes. But you might be thinking, well, well hey, wait a second. They, they don't really have uh, missile-guided bullets that can chase you down, do they? Yes, they do. Watch this. Those really smart people out of Sandia Labs have come up with a bullet that doesn't miss. Sandia scientists and engineers have wide expertise in miniature technology, nanotechnology. And the bullet is actually a tiny guided missile. News 13 Scott Daniels has more from the Newsplex. Dick, this patented design would give superpowers to average shooters. It could change the way American soldiers are trained on the front lines. This laboratory is about building very, very tiny machines. James Jones and his team of engineers at Sandia Labs has turned average size ideas and made them enormous by shrinking them down. The actual one is this dot right there in the middle. Their newest project, to take a self-guided missile and put it into a 50 caliber rifle. It shoots like a dart. Instead of shooting straight with a spiral motion, it twists and turns to find a laser-pointed target at the end making up to 30 corrections per second 
while in the air. From the sensor, it commands little fins in the back so that the, the bullet pitches and yaws and turns itself and guides itself towards the laser dot. In theory, put these into soldiers' machine guns and they'll hit their mark faster with precise accuracy so soldiers can spend less time in a firefight. DARPA's Extreme Accuracy Tasked Ordnance Program, or Exacto, took part in a live fire demonstration of in-flight guided 50 caliber bullets. The bullets independently maneuver through the air after being fired and they successfully hit targets that were over a mile away. The rounds changed their path in flight, striking targets that were not lined up with the sniper rifle's original aim. The 50 caliber rounds utilize optical sighting technology and a real-time guidance system, allowing them to be used anytime during the day and night. DARPA explains the importance of the bullets, noting, It is critical that snipers be able to engage targets faster and with better accuracy, since any shot that doesn't hit a target also risks the safety of troops by indicating their presence and potentially exposing their location. The ammunition will also be extremely helpful when windy weather or moving targets make accurate shots far more difficult. The smart rounds certainly have the potential to revolutionize rifle precision. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you're enjoying our documentary. But uh, before you go, let me ask you a couple questions. Did you know the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? Holy means without sin. God is without sin. The problem is we have sin. We've done some things that are wrong. And the problem with this is the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. In other words, we, need to, we deserve to die and be separated from God forever in a place called hell. And that's the ultimate question. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Well, unless you deal with the sin issue, the Bible's very clear. We're not going to go up. We're going to go down. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. Uh, God wants to fix this for us. He's made a provision uh, so that we could escape hell and go to heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. But we don't want to admit it. And so out of love, he sent us something called the Ten Commandments. It's his way to give us an x-ray so that we can admit we got a problem, that we have sin inside that separates us from him. And if we would just admit it and ask for his help, he'll fix it. But let's take a look at his divine x-ray. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment says, uh, if you will, you think you're good enough to get to heaven, you're holy like God, you're without sin, uh, then prove it to God. Don't ever bear false witness. That's the Ninth Commandment, which means lying. So how many guys have ever told a lie ever once in your life? Well, every single one of you should have raised your hand because we all have. Believe it or not, that disqualifies you right there for heaven. The Bible also says you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. Folks, if we're honest, we've done that too. The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And now the blessed name of Jesus Christ has become a common cuss word. That's called the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says you shall not commit adultery. You think you're worthy of getting to heaven? Just march on in there yourself, all by yourself. You don't need God's help? Then don't ever commit adultery. And Jesus said his standards is this. If you ever look at lust with your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, I haven't done that one. Really? Once again, here's the Bible standard. Jesus said that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, is akin to the sin of murder. You just, if you will, pull the trigger in your heart. But that's just five out of 10, how are you doing? You're gonna stand before God one day and you're gonna to have to admit who you are. He already knows, but you're gonna to have to admit, hey God, let me in, let me into heaven. I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, murderer, and the Bible is very clear, such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. But here's the good news. 
God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and I. He took the death penalty in our place. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And he took our punishment on the cross so that we could be forgiven and set free. It's called a pardon. God wants to pardon you. But that pardon will do you no good unless you reach out and receive it. Won't you do that today? Won't you do that right now? You don't even know if you have tomorrow. You may not even make it through the rest of this documentary. Don't leave this earth without Jesus being your Lord and Savior. Call upon his name. Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you shall be saved. Well, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. And again, I hope you're enjoying our documentary. But please make sure that you're headed to heaven today. I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.